0: Welcome to Doha Debates. Each episode, we explore an urgent issue, present two opposing sides on that issue, and try to see where, if any, common ground can be found. We hope to bring you a conversation that's well-informed and spirited, but civil and respectful as well. I'm your host, Jen Williams, a deputy editor at Foreign Policy Magazine, which is based in Washington, DC. And for much of the past century, DC has been the world's center of power. America still has the world's largest economy, the dollar is still the world's central currency, and then you look at America's military strength, and America spends more than all other countries when it comes to its military, and it still has the strongest force in the world. But recently, there's been a noticeable shift away from the United States, and that can be seen in the military realm, where Russia invaded Ukraine despite U.S. sanctions against it, You can see it in the spread of nationalism and protectionist policies popularized by the Trump administration. And it can be seen in the rising geopolitical influence of the BRICS countries, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, whose sheer size and economic might is reshaping global power structures. So all of these factors have some people wondering, has the United States peaked? That's the question we're debating today. Does the world still look to the United States as an ascendant superpower whose influence is the prevailing force for spreading democratic values, or is the U.S. on the decline as its population ages, its technological advantages diminish, and its ability to strong-arm other nations into compliance has waned? Here to help us answer that are two non-Americans. In fact, both are joining us from about as far away from the U.S. as you can get. Joining us from Manila in the Philippines is Richard Haydarian. He's a senior lecturer at the University of the Philippines Asian Center, and he's written extensively on U.S. influence in the world, including in his book, The Indo-Pacific, Trump, China, and the New Struggle for Global Mastery. And from Sydney, Australia, we're pleased to welcome Lavina Lee. She's a senior lecturer in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University, and is the author of the book, U.S. Hegemony and International Legitimacy. Welcome to you both. Later on in the program, we're going to hear from some of our global listeners who've been tuning in and want to share their comments on the debate. But first, let's get our two debaters positions staked out. We'll start with Levina. Lavina, you
1: believe that the United States has not yet peaked, so why not? Thanks for having me on the show, it's a real pleasure. Now this question I think has come up because China is rising, which leads many people to assume that America is in decline. In the broadest macro sense, America's GDP has remained virtually the same since 2010 at around 23 to 25% of global GDP. But the discussion today isn't just about GDP, it's about America's strengths relative to its rivals. And on this basis, I argue that US strengths are better than those of its rivals, including China. And these are a favorable demography with a population that continues to grow until the mid-century, a modest rise in working age people and a fertility rate that is still more enviable than its rivals. It remains consistently the world's top destination for foreign direct investment, is consistently ranked in the top five most innovative economies and dominates high quality intellectual property patents. It retains advantages stemming from having the world's reserve currency, is energy self-sufficient, will remain the country with the world's most powerful military for some time, exists in a peaceful neighborhood and has genuine allies, holds considerable influence, soft power and perceptions of trustworthiness, in East and Southeast Asia. And in addition to all of these, is not sitting on its hands. It has embarked on a comprehensive policy of economic and technological competition with its main rival, China. And if you don't believe me, trust those who have the most to lose. Virtually every billionaire and hedge fund manager are placing the majority of their long-term bets on US dollar assets. Great, thank you, Levina. And now, Richard,
0: you disagree. You feel like America has reached the height of its power and influence and that it's all downhill from here. So explain your position.
2: Well, my my position is quite nuanced. I mean, I also happen to believe that this is not going to be China's century. I think I I agree with many people that perhaps China is also picked, but I do not believe that this will be America's second century. I mean, for almost a century, we have been accustomed to having America as the preeminent power and enjoying what, of course, scholars call hegemony, a kind of a full spectrum dominance that has defined much of our lives here. But I do believe that in relative terms, what we're experiencing is indeed a post-American world in the making. I think the rest have finally reason. I think we're in an era of more multi-alignment rather than choosing between the United States or China. We're seeing growing confidence and quest for strategic autonomy by more and more post-colonial nations. And I think this century, the coming century, we could be the century of the middle powers. Essentially, countries who may not be superpowers like China or the United States, but they do have sufficient capabilities to make their mark on the international system. They have sufficient credibility to push for cooperation. And they can form what I call a coalition of unwilling, uh, even when they may have shared interest with the United States on many other issues. They can say no to both China and also to the United States.
0: Great. Thank you. So speaking of China, Richard, we see China flexing its muscles in the South China Sea as it seeks to intimidate its neighbors like Taiwan, Vietnam. In your mind, does this show that China is no longer worried about the U.S. military presence in the area, or is it the opposite?
2: Well, coming from the Philippines, although I've spent a significant amount of time in other regions of the world, including the Middle East, uh, we can talk about that later on. My first book was actually on the Arab Spring. But going back to the Philippines, in fact, I think many Filipinos would want the Americans to remain as a predominant power, the hegemonic power, for quite some time, because anti-China sentiments is very strong. And one leading reason is precisely what's happening in the South China Sea. And indeed, uh, I think this is where we see that America is extremely, extremely important. But interestingly, the Philippines is also a very instructive case. Uh, let's not forget: just a year ago, we had a different president called Rodrigo Duterte. So you had actually the president of a leading U.S. ally, in fact, the oldest uh, U.S. ally in Asia, openly defying the United States. More than defying, actually, you know, he used you know very colorful language to put it mildly, and in many ways, he did not, you know, get. You know, slapped even on the wrist, perhaps, right? Uh, In fact, the Philippines got even more military aid from the United States under Duterte. And in fact, the United States took the Philippines even more seriously under Duterte. I mean, just look at the lengths that both Trump and Biden went in order to win over the Philippines so that the Philippines doesn't cancel its visiting forces agreement with the United States so as a Filipino based in the Philippines in perhaps the most pro-American country and a country that really depends on America for its national defense, even here I saw how dramatically things have changed, especially on the psychological level. And that's why now under Ferdinand Marcos Jr., right, you have a president who is much more comfortable with the United States, but he still speaks the Duterte language, that we want to be more independent, that we need to strike our own balance in our foreign relations. 10, 20, 15 years ago, that was not the issue. 10, 20 years ago, it was more or less uh, assumed that the United States is our unquestionable ally, and this is going to be the alignment that will define our foreign policy. That's no longer the case. The Philippines is now friendly with Vietnam, with India. It would have been friendlier with Russia if not for invasion of Ukraine and sanctions, and even with countries like Iran, for instance. uh, Marcos Jr. called Iran a non-traditional partner. So just the experience of my own country in the Philippines has shown me how things have dramatically changed.
0: And Lavina, you're in Australia, so I imagine you have a, an interesting perspective as well there. Um, you know, we recently saw the the AUKUS agreement. That's an awkward acronym uh, for this trilateral security pact among Australia, the United Kingdom and the U.S., hence AUKUS. Um, under the agreement, the U.S. and the U.K. are, are meant to provide Australia um, and help them acquire nuclear-powered submarines. So Australia, obviously a longtime partner of the United States. What are your thoughts about
1: you know China versus U.S. power,
0: military fears in that region?
1: I think what you can see, I mean, we're, we're talking about China now, or I'm going to bring China into it. I think one thing that from an Australian perspective, I think is very clear is that President Xi has essentially stuffed up. <laughs> it has. Uh, he has, you know, broken with the previous leaders in China, who really tried to allow for China's rise without the development of countervailing coalitions against China, and because of Xi's more aggressive and assertive behavior in the South China Sea and more recently uh, vis-à-vis Taiwan. I think what you can really see is that development of those countervailing coalitions. So you see Australia almost in a uh, pseudo-alliance with Japan and that would never have really accelerated in the way it has in the last few years without these fears about what China's intentions are in the South China Sea and the East China Sea and now vis-a-vis Taiwan. Um, And you can see also Biden's industrial policies, the administration's ability to uh, get the European Union to come on board with um, tech export controls and investment controls. I think all of that is a signal that we are all worried about where China is headed, what the, the next five years even will hold. And that is leading to countries, including the Philippines. And yes, I I do take it from Richard that it's not not, um, entirely clear whether the Philippines will be with America in, in, for example, a Taiwan Straits crisis. Uh, But it's also clear that without China's increasing aggression against the Philippines in the South China Sea, we wouldn't have even had the kind of basing agreement that the Philippines has agreed to under Marcos. But yes, I think you should put that AUKUS agreement in that same category of Australia looking to its traditional allies, the United States and the United Kingdom, using those relationships with countries with high technology that Australia doesn't have, because we are feeling um, heightened threat perceptions from China in this region. So we are relying more on the United States. Okay, Richard, what do you think?
2: Yeah um, on the on the issue of AUKUS, for instance the minilaterals my interpretation is slightly different i i, I mean i agree with uh, levina that australia is leaning on its trusted allies tried and trusted allies this kind of a maritime democracies to ensure that its interests are protected including the south pacific my argument though is that the minilaterals this minilateral arrangements are precisely the reflection of the growing flexibility and dynamism in the international system in a sense that the United States can no longer just corral nations and put up another NATO in another part of the world. It's just no longer in the position to do that. So you have more and more countries going for flexible, minilateral, issue-specific, non-hierarchical, non-centralized cooperation with America. The Indians have it under the quadrilateral security dialogue, and they're absolutely clear we're not a U.S. ally. We're not going to align with them on every single issue.
0: Um, I want to talk about the Middle East. Um, You know, it's not just military influence like we've been talking about. It's also U.S. diplomatic influence as well, right? Um, And whether it's as strong or, you know, as it once was, and I think the Middle East is a really good place to kind of take a look at that. Um, You know, we had Iran and Saudi Arabia announcing their rapprochement in China, in Beijing. And, you know, recently we had China inserting itself into the Yemen-Saudi peace talks. Um, You know, we've definitely seen Saudi Arabia, you know, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. uh, I don't know if you can say thumbing his nose at at the U.S. and the Biden administration, but certainly not, you know, uh, you know, saying jump how high every time the U.S. uh, has something to say. So, Lavina, do you think this is a
1: sign of America's waning diplomatic strength? Um, Look, from Australia's perspective, when we look at what's going on in the Middle East, I think it's definitely true to say that um, the United States, the level of influence that the United States has over the Middle East has declined relatively, but that's, I think, also a function of some good fortune. Um, When when I mentioned the fact that America has energy self-sufficiency, that's a distinct advantage that America has had over other countries, and that actually allows it to have less of a a kind of dependency on what's going on in the Middle East and more flexibility. And it perhaps demonstrates that China is in the opposite position, that it is actually highly dependent on fossil fuel um, imports and so has a a bigger stake in stability in the Middle East than the United States has had in the past. But I I wouldn't say that the United States is out of it. It still has very deep relationships and, and diplomatic clout in the Middle East, if it chooses to exercise it. Okay, Richard, what do you think?
2: Well, I, we see something has been happening. First, we saw with Turkey, right? Turkey did not want to help the United States during the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and we see with Erdogan how he's trying to play his own game despite being a NATO member. But I think what's even more crucial is how Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, this supposed very US dependent countries, I mean, Probably 80% of their weapon systems and training come from the United States alone. Even these countries are now openly defying the United States, playing their own games, reaching out to Iran on their own. And now there are even reports that the United Arab Emirates may be open to military-basing access agreements to China. If not, that's already happening. Uh, Not to mention high-tech cooperation with Huawei. So... If you look at all of this, again, it doesn't mean the U.S. is inconsequential, but at best it's becoming primus inter pares. And perhaps it's my understanding of this rapid evolution of the geopolitical landscape in the Middle East that makes me think maybe the same thing is about to happen in other major parts of the world. Perhaps Latin America could be the, uh, could be the last, but in Central Asia, in Southeast Asia, I think the field is very, very dynamic. And the good news is, This is not necessarily in favor of China. I think this is in favor of smaller or middle-sized countries who have now more options, can play different sides against each other more effectively than ever before. We tried it during the Cold War period, but back then, most of our countries were too poor uh, and too dependent on on either of the superpowers to survive. That's no longer the case. Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, these are trillion-dollar-sized economies. They have a lot of strategic autonomy, and my sense is, Indonesia, Vietnam, and the Philippines are going to move in a similar direction. So that was always the comparative view that, that that helped me to understand perhaps where this century is going.
0: Great. Okay. I do want to move on to talk about economics. So, you know, there's this term that the Biden administration has been trying to use and make happen, uh, which is Bidenomics, right? And this is, you know, the Biden administration's kind of economic approach that focuses on growing the middle class and having a less of a top-down approach. It's had muted success here in the United States in terms of people rallying behind the phrase itself. But Lavina, you say that it's it's actually working abroad. Tell us why you think that Bidenomics is a sign of America's continued
1: ascendancy. Okay, I'll qualify that. I think what I said at the top is that I think America is competing. So it recognizes that has got a, a strong competitor competitor in China and that it is using its alliance relationships to actually re-engineer one its own industrial policy in the United States, which is a, a very unusual thing for America to actually have such an interventionist government in industrial policy, almost mimicking the kind of things that China has been doing for the last two decades. But I think what what it is able to do because of its continuing economic clout and its, I guess, alliances, uh, strong and deep alliances with the European Union and other G7 economies, is that it is actually getting those countries to come on board with effectively quarantining high technology access from China. So we're we're talking about the CHIPS Act, but we're also talking about other forms of industrial policy Export controls, I know now the European Union and the United States are talking about controls on investment into China in areas of high technology. So it, in a sense, I think what we're seeing is a, is a turning point or a point in time where I'm not saying that Biden, Bidenomics is working yet. Um, I think it's too early to say, but $1.7 trillion worth of intervention subsidies, etc. in the U.S. economy is actually going to redirect a lot of foreign investment into America in these areas of high technology. And it is actually giving America potentially the ability to compete in much a much stronger way with China going forward.
0: Okay. And Richard, it's your turn. You can give us your take on Bidenomics, but also the world economy, right? So, you know, the dollar is still very much the world's leading currency. America has the capacity to acquire debt like no other nation, do you think that, that this kind of unique economic standing, so much of the, the world economy is dependent on a stable dollar, does that solidify America's economic standing in the world? What do you think?
2: I think this part is really interesting. Um, I mean, for me, if you look at it, we see a trend line from Trump to Biden, right? Uh, of course, there's a refinements here, better tactics, but protectionism industrial policy, building America's capabilities first, that seems to be something common between Trump and Biden. And my sense is if we are going to have another Trump or another Biden, it's going to be the same. So this looks like something that is going to be more of a bipartisan issue for quite some time. And China obviously is a big factor in this. But for me, I agree that that may help America to rebuild its manufacturing base and perhaps even semiconductor industry, etc. That's all that's offered debate. But I do believe that's also where America is weak internationally, particularly in my region, here in East Asia and Southeast Asia, on two levels. First of all, because of the bipartisan focus on industrial policy, essentially America first in an economic sense, Washington is no longer in a position to provide market access. Since the nixing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement by President Trump, essentially nothing has been put on the table to replace it, right? And a lot of us are very skeptical. America, any American president, is in a position to do that. Both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have gone in the more protectionist direction. We even saw that Obama was struggling to get uh, the kind of authority needed to push for TPP towards the end of his term. So we're very skeptical about that, and that's precisely why we're worried. If you look at the Indo-Pacific economic framework that the Biden administration proposed last year, to be honest, it's more sizzle than steak, right? To put it nicely, right? Uh, we're still waiting for what's exactly on the table. I mean, we had a huge book project here with other experts across the region, each country, etc., and much ado about nothing was more or less the common thing among a lot of us, and and we're we're so we're. We're worried about the structural ability of American presidents to put forward even market access. The fact that the U.S. could not even give us updates on the digital free trade, which is supposed to be an easier form of a free trade agreement or a pre-free trade agreement, even that no longer seems to be on the table. But the second issue here is that America is using more stick than carrots. I mean, the carrots I already mentioned, it's not much of a carrots out there yet, at least. But the stick is this tech sanctions that United States is imposing on China. Well, guess what? China is central to vertically integrated supply chains across the region. And in fact, now you see very close friends of the United States or interlocutors like Singapore openly coming out and lambasting this because this is hurting a lot of us in the region because a lot of us are dependent on China for technological input for market access, for exports and technological cooperation. And we fear that the more the Americans use this stick, it's going to also inevitably going to hurt us and really ruin the supply chains across the region. So this is not the America we're used to, which was at the very forefront of economic globalization during the Clinton years, which was at the forefront of the whole APEX summit and all of that. But now there's a lot of skepticism. If you don't believe me, listen to Singaporeans, listen to Indonesians. Many in the region are skeptical about America's economic leadership.
0: So we're getting towards the end here. Uh, so I want to get one more question, in, and then we're going to go to our listeners here. So my last question is is about soft power, right? We've talked about economic power, military power. You know, another kind of big arena of American power has been soft power. The United States as this kind of beacon on the hill, this, this pillar of democracy, um, Obviously that image took a pretty big hit on January 6, 2021, uh, during the attack on the the US Capitol by Donald Trump supporters. How much lasting damage do you think that has that has done? And you know, from both of your vantage points, have other countries started to look elsewhere to, you know, find good models of democracy or or even non-democratic governance perhaps, like the the Chinese model for example.
1: So U.S. soft power, is it, is it still as strong? Lavina, you first. Okay, um, look, I, I do think the Trump um, administration did a lot of damage in this region, and, and I don't have the stats on hand, but if you were to look at some of the public opinion polls in Australia but also around the region, I think there was a, a plummeting of confidence in American leadership uh, all around. Uh, but I do I do think, okay, uh, we'll, we'll take the capital riots um, from, I think, the perspective of Australians. Um, all we've seen since the Biden administration has come into power is essentially a, uh, a deepening of support for the United States, for the United St- the U.S. alliance. And I think we feel that you know adults are in the room, adults are in charge, and there's a lot more confidence in an American foreign policy and leadership. I-, I think from in Australia, but also elsewhere. And I- I'll just I did take some statistics from a survey that's done of elites by the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies. They do it every year. It's very authoritative. And I thought what was interesting is um, the the kind of level of um, respect and support for the United States is, is continuing to increase, and especially relative to China. And one question they asked is, a few questions. One is, is the US a reliable strategic partner? And 47% of respondents said they were confident or very confident. And another was, if ASEAN was forced to choose between the US and China, 61.1% of respondents in ASEAN states said they would choose the United States. In terms of the capital rights, and here I'm just giving you an Australian perspective on that, It is true that we've seen declines in democracy. I think Freedom House does a survey uh, every year, makes a a pronouncement. And I think for maybe the 14th year in a row, there's been a decline in democratic practices around the world. But from the opposite perspective, I think it actually shows you that when you have a liberal democracy with uh, relatively strong institutions, that the rule of law applies even to former presidents. And that is not the case in every country that we know of in our region or elsewhere, that it is quite extraordinary to see a former president indicted for various alleged uh, (laughs) crimes uh, and and now being prosecuted. And that's that's quite an extraordinary thing and does actually show you that in democracies, uh, no one's above the law and that there is a separation of powers and it is of benefit um, in terms of the strength of governance going forward. So I, I see that as a positive after after the riots that there has actually been a response. I will say it's rather
0: extraordinary for us too <laughs> in America to have a former president indicted. We don't do that every day either, but um, <laughs> but I, I take your point. And and Richard, sort of the kind of flip side, I guess, of, of the American soft power dented argument, you know. I think about the American dream and, you know, the idea that anyone from any background can rise up and be successful in the United States as long as they work hard enough. Do you think people still believe that's a fundamental American value? Is is that still an attractive kind of element of American soft power? What say you?
2: Yeah, I mean, as far as the Americans uh, so far is concerned, I mean, obviously, Hollywood is getting good competition from Koreans. And I think when it comes to arraignment and jailing of former president, I think Koreans have quite a record to match. So I think... <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. I've, I've, I've lost count of how many former South Koreans found themselves in jail. Uh, now, you know, when it comes to American democracy, I mean, on one hand, as a Filipino, as a country, you know, coming from a country that was an American colony, you know, I mean, our, our joke is, well, America is more rel- related nowadays. And and we appreciate the the humility in the tone of American diplomacy nowadays, including when they criticize human rights situation in places like the Philippines, right? Uh, There are, unfortunately, many troubled democracies. But my sense here is that the fragility of the American political system uh, might be passing a certain threshold, which is going to make it very difficult for the United States to authoritatively project itself as a kind of this kind of a you know a, you know a, a, a country that can be a promoter of democracy and and we are seeing that every time the United States criticizes any country immediately there's a what about this you know kind of repost right whether this is from a country like India or from an authoritarian country full fledged of authoritarian country like China and my fear here is that as political polarization in America actually intensifies you're just giving easy materials. To to the rival powers and to skeptics uh, and to illiberal forces around the world. I mean, just look at the uh, the AI generated Republican Party apocalypse of you know if whether Biden is going to win once again. This is what's going to happen to America. I mean, this is an easy propaganda point uh, for for many other countries. So I mean, there is that excitement about America, but whether it does carry also the kind of authoritative land of promise that it used to be, I, I just I just don't see that because I think. Uh, the whole uh, social movement direction, the woke movement in America has exposed the inequalities and the fragilities of American political system in ways that has not been the case during my parents' generation or my uncles and other family members who migrated to the United States. So that's also where I see America's weakness in as much as I completely agree with Lavina that, that at least that puts America a step ahead of you know, Russian or Chinese models of governance. Every month, Pass Blue produces an original podcast for our Unscripted series on the Security Council Rotating Presidency. In February, we spoke with the Ambassador of Guyana, for example. Unscripted brings you straight into the Council Chamber, where the UN's most important work takes place. Each month, we speak to diplomats about their country's agenda in leading the Council and their goals to achieving global peace and security. Unscripted is a podcast from PassBlue, a women-led media site providing independent coverage of the UN. Search for Unscripted wherever you get podcasts, starting with SoundCloud.
0: All right, great. So during our debates, we welcome listeners from around the world and call on them to briefly share their views and to ask questions of our panel. First with us is Hamza Wahab. He's listening in from Mogadishu, Somalia. And Hamza has a question about U.S. military strength. So, Hamza, go right ahead.
2: Thank you so much. My question is about uh, Somalia has been uh, a recipient of American aid and military interventions for decades. Uh, But there's some debates about whether its power and influence are now in decline. Some experts point to the rise of China, China's influence mainly in Africa and Southeast Asia, particularly now in Somalia. The growing inequalities in the United States and the country's political polarization as evidence that America is no longer the hegemonic power it once was. Others argue that the United States is still the most powerful country in the world and that its decline is exaggerated. What is your thoughts? Thank you so much.
0: Sure, so Richard, you wanna go first?
2: Yeah, I think fantastic question from from someone that I think has you know knows way more than all of us here in terms of the you know the edge of power when it comes to global competition. I think uh, the case of Somalia and the case of uh, Horn of Africa itself is essentially showing what I've been saying that you know this is not just U.S. versus China. We see countries like Turkey, we see United Arab Emirates. More and more middle powers have been also exercising a lot of influence in that part of the world, and at the same time we also see that. Yes, the United States is the most powerful military on Earth, but military power is not achieving the kind of political ends that many would have expected. Military power is no longer as decisive as it used to be, and case in point is what happened in Afghanistan and also in many parts of the Middle East, whereby we saw that after years of American military intervention, we're nowhere close to the kind of strategic goals that America even sets for itself. So that will be my provisional answer.
1: Okay, Lavina. I I think what I I would say is that uh, the demise of America is exaggerated. I still think that it will consistently remain at around the the level it is now. Um, So we're really all assuming that America is in decline and and China is on the rise. But I think there's a lot of indicators that China, China itself has peaked and that it is dealing already with Uh, demographic problems. um, Its level of growth is, is kind of leveling out. It's no longer at that spectacular level. A lot of the internal contradictions in its political economy that have arisen because of the Chinese Communist Party's intervention in the economy, all of those things are now combining to actually make a lot of people outside of China look at it and think, oh, well, maybe the assumptions that we've made about China eclipsing the United States are not correct as well. And that bodes well for the United States. And I think the United States, I think, is actually exacerbating some of those problems with all of those types of supply chain rerouting and uh, trying to bar China from access to high technology um, in, in semiconductors, quantum, AI new technologies in terms of environment and renewables.
0: Okay, so we also want to welcome Josiah Montivis, uh whose friends call her Jay. She, like Richard, is in the Philippines. Jay, you have a question about the United States and where it stands in relation to other dominant countries in history.
2: Sure, thank you so much. Um, my one question here is that there's been a rise on the trend, particularly on TikTok, that's called what do you what's your Roman Empire? Basically the slang term of saying what do you think about all the time? With the US having its soft power, I just wanted to ask, do we see um, the US turning in its own version of the Roman Empire? And do we see a more pluralistic approach in our world systems as an alternative to American hegemony? Is America
0: like the Roman Empire falling and crumbling? <laughs> Richard, you want to go first and then we'll go to Lavina.
2: Well, my sense is we are increasingly entering a kind of an a la carte world, right? <laughs> Whereby, you know, if, if you are a mid-sized or small-sized country, you have all sorts of options to pick from here and there. There's just not one Roman Empire major, you know, imperial force to deal with. But there's so many other options. As we can see in the case of the Philippines, some weapon systems we want to get from India, some from South Korea. We want to have some free trade with this country, with that country. So I think the pluralization is indeed happening in the international system. Where I think perhaps I could be wrong is that if there were to be a conflict in the near future, I think the indispensability of America will be suddenly reinforced. But I think if we keep the peace together and current trend lines for the next 30 to 50 years, then I think America's relative decline will be solidified.
0: And Lavina, thoughts on the Roman Empire,
1: (laughs) go. (laughs) (laughs) Look, okay, you started with TikTok. I I still think that, um, okay, TikTok is a Chinese technology or platform, so that's one difference. But I would say, though, that I think American cultural uh, influence is, for good or bad, still highly dominant around the world. Even many countries that don't even speak English as a first language Uh, will know all sorts of things about America and American culture that is not true for any other country. And yes, Richard, we're in agreement on this, is that um, as things are heating up in our region, in East Asia and Southeast Asia, that ability to play off both sides and to get the best from both, even including Australia. We we are in a period where we are feeling the heat, where we have a very strong economic relationship with China, but also a deteriorating strategic relationship that pushes us even closer towards our alliance. I think that kind of trend line is affecting all countries and as long as as it it remains a peaceful environment, that type of jostling and trying to get the best from both will continue, but there is no choice at a certain point. If there is a a war over Taiwan, um, countries will have to choose. They will be forced to choose uh, and there will be this continuing kind of bifurcation of the world economy, but also diplomatically and politically, there will be a bifurcation and countries will have to choose.
0: OK, so before we wrap up our final kind of segment that we'd like to do is uh, uh, it's all about reconciliation, although both of you have been uh, very conciliatory and, and very civil. Um, so I just want to kind of go back to each of you and, and see, you know, if there's something that struck a chord with you, some area that made you maybe rethink. Richard, let's start with you. I, is there something that stood out for you that Lavina said that you think is some common ground?
2: Yeah, I I think I definitely agree that America's indispensability will be further reinforced should a major conflict happen because all of the hedging and jostling and playing different sides against each other and having the cake and eating it too, that phenomenon is only possible insofar as we prevent a major conflict between the United States and China and especially for us in this part of the world, especially for the Philippines. So I think that is where I would perhaps a little bit reconsider Uh, the certitude of my initial argument. But I still maintain that if we prevent a great power conflict for a generation and two, then this could become the century of middle powers, that the global South will finally have the kind of voice that it has been striving for uh, since the decolonization process started a century earlier.
0: Okay, Lavina, same question to you. You know, you have a more optimistic view of America's future, but you know, was there something in particular that Richard
1: said? Okay, what I would I would say is that there are there are more opportunities for countries to take a different line to the United States, um, and there is seemingly a much more of a bifurcation between good military strategic relations with the United States versus political and, and economic differences. Now, I think I would also agree with Richard that in a peacetime context even despite the fact that China uh, and its its ability to grow at the, the level that it has and whether it's, you know, really in itself peaked. Regardless of that, I think I would agree with Richard that the United States really has to come to the table in terms of having an economic policy and uh, offering for countries in East Asia and Southeast Asia if this region is the most important region for the United States going into the mid-century in terms of the the level of economic growth. Um, The United States really, I think that is a big hole in its strategy is that it doesn't have an economic offering. Um, So if we assume that China can get itself out of the doldrums um, that it's in right now, which is a big assumption, I think that that is kind of seeding ground to China and might have an impact in the US being able to retain its position. Great. Well, thank you. Um, my thanks to
0: our two debaters, Richard Hedarian who joined us from Manila in the Philippines, and Lavina Lee, who is connecting to us from Sydney, Australia. And thanks to our global listeners, Hamza Wahab in Somalia and Jay Montives in the Philippines. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Doha Debates. I've been your host, Jen Williams. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation. Our podcast is produced by FP Studios and Doha Debates. Our producers include Ashley Westerman, TJ Raphael, Claudia Tatey, and Katrine Dermody. Additional assistance from James Wally. FP Studios Managing Director is Rob Sachs. Our executive producers are JFit Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Mehta. To learn more about Doha Debates, please head to dohadebates.com where you can find out more about our other podcasts, short films, upcoming events, and more. There, you can also find links to our other podcast, The Negotiators, which I host as well. The new season is out now. And please, if you like our podcast, follow and share your reviews. Thanks for listening.